Today on the Dolby Institute podcast, we're talking about writing with some of the top writers in the industry. With the recent resolution of the Writers Guild strike, it seems like screenwriting is on everyone's mind these days. So our good friend, Dolby Institute Fellowship winner and very successful storyteller himself, Carlos Lopez Estrada, has put together yet another all-star panel of Hollywood talent to discuss how they've navigated the industry as screenwriters, television writers, and showrunners. Today's panel includes the writers of some of your favorite shows, including Grey's Anatomy, The Newsroom, BoJack Horseman, Westworld, and many others. These talented writers have not only enjoyed enormous success in our industry, but have also brought their fresh perspectives, which have been missing for a long time in Hollywood, including narratives that have focused on Asian Americans, women, Latin American, and Native Americans, just to name a few. This is another installment in our Satellite Sessions series, which were recorded as live webinars, which we're bringing to you now in partnership with Anti-Gravity Academy and the Coalition of Asian Pacifics and Entertainment. Once again, we are extremely proud to bring these conversations to you, filled with real-world advice, as well as the origin stories behind each one of these artists all with the aim to provide essential knowledge for navigating the film industry as an emerging writer, filmmaker, and storyteller. Take it away, Carlos. Uh, as we all know, writers are the backbone of storytelling and, of course, the backbone of our industry. And during this pivotal time in our entertainment community, it feels as important as ever to hear from the artists who are the foundation of everything we do and to also be reminded why we need to make sure that all film and TV writers are compensated fairly, treated with dignity, and continue to feel empowered to share the stories with all of us. Today we are joined by four powerhouse writers who will share a little bit about their experiences creating film and TV that has truly been game-changing for our industry. They are responsible for giving us singular stories that authentically reflect the world that we live in, as well as help us envision the world that we want to see. So please help me welcoming Carolina Baez. She is a TV and film writer originally from Guatemala. Her credits include Narcos, Grey's Anatomy, La Hora Cero, and Orange is the New Black, among others, uh, which she also executive produced. Together with her husband, Diego Velasco, she owns Open Studios, a development company committed to telling stories that explore the Latina experience with authenticity, nuance, and humor. Then we have Dana Ledoux Miller, a writer and producer of Samoan European descent, who has worked in TV and film for the last decade. She's a graduate of the University of Hawaii at Manoa and co-founder and board chair of the nonprofit Pacifica Entertainment Advancement Committee, or PEAK. She has written on television shows such as The Newsroom, as well as showrunning Thai Cave Rescue, and is now behind the live action adaptation of Disney's Moana, which we're all very excited about. Then we have Joanna Kahlo, who is an amazing writer whose credits include the Emmy-nominated Beef, Golden Globe-winning Hacks, The Babysitter's Club on Netflix, Amazon's Undone, and six seasons of BoJack Horseman. 
Great show. She's also co-showrunner, executive producer, writer, and director of FX's hit show, The Bear. Hello, John. Uh, and last but not least, we have Charles Yu, who is the author of four books, including Interior Chinatown, which won the 2020 National Book Award for Fiction and was just adapted as a television show for Hulu, which he is also show running. He's been a part of shows such as American Born Chinese, Westworld, and Marvel and FX's Legion. His fiction and nonfiction works have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, Wired, among many other publications. So as you can see, we are joined by incredible, incredible talent. Thank you all so much for uh, coming here today and giving us a little bit of your time. Today, as we know, it's Labor Day in the U.S., and I'd first like to start by acknowledging the incredible labor movement that is currently happening with the WGA and the SAG strikes. Could you give us a little bit of insight into what the last couple months have been like and any particularly meaningful conversations that have emerged amongst either your colleagues or your communities? It's been, it's been a challenging few months, um, and I think we all know enough about it that I won't really go into the details. I think for me, what's really been kind of inspiring is to see how, you know, it's it's hot labor summer, right? And it's not only what's ha happening with the WGA, what's happening with SAG, but also we're really seeing how labor movements are popping up everywhere. And we're really, I think, a lot of us for the first time appreciating um, the amount of change that has to happen, not just in our industry, but sort of worldwide as a culture, the gulf that exists between the people who make a company run and the people who are running a company is so great. And so much of the pay issues are even graver than what they are in our industry. And it's been really good to be able to talk about those, not only on the picket lines, but to see how they're popping up on the headlines. Um, and I think one of the conversations that has really resonated with me that I've been hearing a lot is the realization about how vertical integration and monopolization has really created this unsustainable system. It's it's a model that puts profits over people. And it's really inspiring to see how so many of us are coming together across different industries to try to rectify this. Um, and, you know, it is my hope that that we are powerful together and that we can actually put a dent on this and start to make some change. I think it's beautifully said. And I, I think like on my on my good days, I feel so proud and and it that that also that it is this like moment for like you're saying, for all of us to come together. And that's the only way that it's going to change. And I really believe in that. And I believe in the fact that we've all been pushed so far <laughs> that we now have to um push back. Um I also I think yeah, I have I have real fears and concerns about the vertical um, nonsense and like how bad it's gotten. And it, I think, you know, we appreciate all the support from everyone else for not just the, the writers go fight, but the fact that these are like really, really bad, um, you know, American problems at this point. And hopefully we're doing our part to, to make some changes. During this challenging period, what is one thing that gives you hope or one thing that you've noticed just in terms of, uh, a shifting perspective around the importance of writers and their fair treatment, their fair compensation. Dana. Um, I don't know if writers will ever get uh, <laughs> all the 
the things fairly that they deserve. But what I have been really um, inspired by and what I think is really important is that so often we're in silos in this business and we don't have we don't interact with each other as much as maybe we should because there's a lot of introverted artists out there. And I've just been really inspired by getting out on the picket line and just having kind of those barriers be dropped and having conversations with other showrunners and other writers and realizing like, oh, we've been through the exact same experiences. And I had no idea, you know, there's so, so many things that I've been through that I felt so alone in. And I think getting people together and actually having conversations has been really powerful and something that will hopefully sustain us moving forward because I think there's a lot of people in this business that want things to change but we we didn't know who the other people were and and there's power in numbers I totally agree with what Dana said I felt a lot of things (laughs) during the experience of production and then felt I thought they were unique and then reading you know other people basically having the same experience doesn't feel like a coincidence it feels like by design um the other thing is I live, I don't live in LA really. I live a little bit outside the bubble. And so like no, none of my neighbors or people I deal with daily, interact with daily, have any connections. Oh, nice. um, so, but the thing they keep asking, well, one, it's nice because they're like, oh, this is what you do. <laughs> like you make the, the shows and two, like, can you guys make some more shows? Like we want our shows. So that's nice, you know, like to <laughs> people are waiting for it uh, when we get back to it. Thank you all for showing up and continuing to share your stories with us because I feel like the more that we learn about them, the more we understand what it is to exist as a writer in our industry and the many beauties, but also the many challenges that come with it. Uh, So thanks for showing up today. Much, much appreciated. Uh, So, okay, shifting a little bit gears. um, For each of you, you've used your creativity and your platforms in ways that have changed our industry, right? Writing all kinds of groundbreaking stories that highlight perspectives that have been missing for a long, long time from TV and film screens. Can you tell us, and we can go around whoever wants to start, tell us a little bit just about your journeys getting here and specifically what it's been like to evolve from being an aspiring writer to a creative now who has agency and choice over the the stories you want to tell and the the material you want to share. It's interesting when I first, I mean, I've always wanted to do the same thing. Like when I first got to LA, um, my brother's friend set me up with this producer. I think he'd done like Anaconda 2 or something on like a lunch to like, so he could give me advice on the industry. And he's like, the Anaconda franchise is wonderful. I just want to say that. (laughs) I should give it a, a I should give it a try. I, I have to admit, I, I never even watched it. Um, bring it back. We, let's do it. I, I, this is this is what we're doing next. Um, anyway, we went to lunch and he was like, so what do you want to work on? And I was like, I want to make independent, political, Latin American, revolutionary films. And he was like, wow, I don't think you're in the right place to do that. I, I think uh-huh. you're going to have a very hard time making a living. You know, my wife is a TV writer and you know, she says that's a really good way to make a living. Why don't you try that? And I was so offended. I was like, how dare you? I've, I've, you know, got integrity and I have things to say, you know, cut two, three years of, you know, PA and commercials and translating scripts and doing all sorts of stuff. And I was like, I have an idea for a TV show. 
And um, the Producers Guild was having this diversity initiative and they chose a few scripts. They chose three scripts. And our mentor at the time was an up and coming writer. She had a new show that was coming out and her name was Shonda Rhimes. And that, yeah. So I really lucked out. Um, and, you know, I, I to be fair, I put a lot of work into that script and into that program because I knew this was my shot. And I stopped planning my wedding. I didn't sleep. You know, I gave it everything. And she saw something in me and brought me on board onto Grace. Um, but it took 15 years of working on other people's shows before I felt like I could finally, that I finally had a right to say, this is what I want to write about. I was always the only Latina on any staff. I was, and certainly never had met another Latina that was ever at a producer level on a staff. Um, and there were so few shows about us that I just didn't even think that, that it was a possibility. So, um, and I, I have to credit Genji Cohen, really, who did um, the creator of Orange is the New Black, who after the show wrapped, we started producing together and Netflix wanted me to do a show about immigration. And um, and she was the one who encouraged me. She was like, what do you want to write about? So I was like, this is not what I want to say. I want to talk about other things. And so uh, she's like, what do you want to do? And so that's how I started to really go back to who I was originally and the reason that I got into this in the first place, which was to tell these radical, political, independent Latin American stories. And, uh, you know, finally, some people are listening and let's hope they're still listening when the strike ends. We'll see. I think they'll be listening more than ever. How have I used my platform? Uh, you know, I still feel like I'm trying to make space for myself to tell stories that I want to tell. Um, I was really on the cusp of getting some projects through. I felt like right before uh, we went to strike, like literally like two days before. Um, and that was really frustrating. Uh, but part of this for me has been a journey. I think when I first started writing in TV, I wasn't confident in, in, claiming my own identity as a someone person. So I think part of that, um, my growth as a writer and my growth as a person have kind of like gone parallel to each other. And so as I have claimed more space for myself and allowed myself to actually fully be like who I am, I think I've, I've started to push um, more for the stories that I want to tell and actually like take ownership of that. But part of that journey has also been like recognizing that I'm in spaces often where I am telling other people's stories. And so how would I feel if I was in that position, if somebody was telling my story? And so I try to take a lot of care and put a lot of thought into holding someone's story and really showing it the respect and um, nurturing that that I would hope somebody would would have for telling my story. Um, but hopefully when this is over, uh, th those pilots that we turned in will just go straight to series and we will tell all the stories that we've been trying to tell for the last few years about the Pacifica people and diaspora. But, you know, I'm not going to hold my breath, but I'm excited. You will, you will, you will. I ha had a very similar experience to Dana when it comes to uh, acknowledging who I actually am and becoming a writer. Um, and I feel so grateful for that. I don't think I would have been able to kind of 
um, detangle the sort of weird Americanization that was put on my mother. Um, and, and then sort of the time I spent in New Jersey, which made me think I was just an Italian person. <laughs> um, if I had not had the chance to sort of write those stories and, and write, um, just really focus on female stories and that became, became sort of autobiographical. And then I was like, oh, these, this is not a white lady. This is a brown lady. And I kind of had to find my way through that. But I think um, my main focus has always just been female stories. And, and it really still is. You know, I think I feel so lucky to always be able to think about, you know, um, diversity. But I still think we have a long way to go with with women on television and in movies. And I feel like whenever I have a meeting and someone says, what do you want to make? I say something with a woman and they go, what if not? And then you're like, oh, okay. Like, like everyone's so excited to be like, what do you want to make? And I'm like, female stuff. And they're like, no, <laughs> or like there's murders, you know? So, and again, I love murders, but I think I still feel like there's, I'm pushing a female agenda, which is so funny to me because I've been here for so long doing the same nonsense. Um, and I haven't, done as well as I want to, and I'm going to, to keep working on that. Uh, but I just to to go backwards, I will say I was um I was an assistant. I dropped out of college and and became an assistant on a TV show kind of through a uh like I, I was in college and they said, why don't you find an internship? And then the internship asked me to stay and then I did and then I I did end up getting my degree, but it kind of threw me into this world of working in production without really thinking about where it was going. Um, and I did that for 10 years. I, mean, I was an assistant for 10 years and um, just really loved it and learned so much. And But really wasn't focused on writing until the end of that 10 years where I was like, oh, you have to actually like have a goal and go for it and do something. And I started writing my scripts and found a writer um, on a staff that I was assisting on that was willing to read and he gave notes and it was John M. Baum who had written on Veronica Mars, which I loved so much. And again, female focused. Um, and even though it's funny, it was a man that had written on a female focused thing. That was as close as I could get. And so um, he read it and then he let me be his assistant on a pilot. And then when that pilot was picked up, I was staffed. And so I very much came in through the like just work, just like work, work, work. And then you start as a staff writer and then you work, work, work. And I, I, so it's like, it kind of takes me 10 years in every job to like get to the, to the top. Um, but it's been, it's been a good journey and, and hopefully we'll use all that knowledge from watching so many other shows get made to, to make, to get more female stuff out there. When you talk about the resistance you've received towards yeah. like your female uh, driven stories, you know, I imagine or I hope that no one just says no flat out to your face. But how have you realized like when is it you're like, are they saying no to the pitches or are they saying yes, but or do you notice it in the development process? It gets watered down or it gets like the focus gets shifted. I imagine it's been all all versions of this, yeah, but mainly the focus gets shifted. So, I, I mean, I, I think, yes, I. It, it's a very interesting phase to be in an, a new phase of like, okay, I'm an adult, you know, like I've, I'm good at my job enough. I've had some success. Like, let's see what this next phase is like. And so it's not people saying no, but it is like, well, what about this? Or like, we liked what you said, but how about this version? Or they send you a book instead. And you're like, well, I'm pitching you a create an original thing that has this. And it's like, 
well, what if there's like a girl character, but it's this book, which is totally not at all the thing you <laughs> want to do. Or even, you know, um, if there's sort of a conversation about projects, they'll be like, what are you excited to do? I'm just saying, repeating myself. It's the same thing. You go this, this, and they go, what about this other thing? That's like been my experience. Um, and we're so trained to say yes and not from an improv way, but just from a like, yeah, we're developing, we're talking um, that you want to get excited. And and also from a business perspective, they're telling you what they want. I mean, they're telling you what they want. And so it ends up being just exhausting to have to like be just doubling down and and someone asking you what you want yeah. and you tell them and then they say no is just very silly to me. It's like, then just don't ask, I guess. And then I'll continue to write little female things, but we didn't have to go through this process. Um, would be great. <laughs> like I, I think the shows you've done have really like taken leaps forward in terms of female driven stories. So I hope you 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 see the impact that your work and the the constant struggle has had. Yeah. That's nice. Thank you, Carlos. That's nice. <laughs> I guess I took the traditional path, law school, practiced as a lawyer for a long time. Somewhere in there I got some I got staffed on Westworld. So I won the lottery, basically, which is like not helpful for anyone that's listening. It's like, how do you get your break? Just wait for 13 years as a lawyer and you will get a phone call one day. Um, <laughs> wait, who who is that phone call from? It was, I mean, it was from my agents, but it was for like the showrunners of Westworld. I guess somehow I had turned up on their list. I, I so assume you had you had agents for your other types of writing. Yes. Yeah. UTA was representing me for film and TV rights. And I was lucky enough to have somehow entered the you know, orbit or consciousness of Lisa and Jonah, who ran that show, co-ran the show. And maybe it's because Lisa was a former lawyer. I don't know. She took pity on me. <laughs> but um, I, you know, I, I think and also somewhere in there, I was I, I think I always from when I was writing short stories, um, was writing from the perspective of marginalized characters, but I don't think I thought of it that way at first. And it took me many years to sort of realize, uh, and with a lot of help, people saying, you seem to be writing about marginalized characters, but sort of under the guise of like genre, for instance. And I was like, oh, I guess that's what I'm doing. So somewhere in there, I tried to write a book, um, which ended up being the book that turned into the show that I ended up getting to run somehow. Um, again, winning the lottery, just being in the right place, right time. Can't beat it as a recipe for success. Just be the luckiest person. Um, on earth. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it took a long time. But so, I, I mean, I guess I didn't explicitly set out to write in like an Asian American voice or story. It just was something that grew organically from something that felt like, you know, write the book that you want to read or write the show that you want to watch. I guess this was like like sort of try to create the voice that you feel like is there somewhere, but hasn't been like given an outlet yet. So that was the the main character of that book. So, I mean, I think that's sort of the path and, and, you know, then, you know, I don't know if other people feel this way, but this sort of imposter syndrome kicks in of like, am I really the representative of this group that I'm being asked to speak for? Do I really have the body of knowledge or, just general intelligence or wisdom to be saying anything of use about this. But, you know, I try to come back to not thinking about it as 
a platform for a message, you know, but the, the story I'm trying to tell the characters and sort of their, their inner lives, that sort of comes back to that. I think you, you started answering my next question, but I'll ask it, we'll go in reverse order. And if, if you feel like you've said everything you need to say about the, the matter, just, you can just pull a skip card. <laughs> um, but could you talk a little bit about the different processes you follow for finding or the way you have found stories, whether it's material that comes from a personal place, stories that you stumble upon or projects or creatives that you've been paired with, like what goes into the decision-making process in terms of, of like this story is worth pursuing. Um, is it, is it an instinctual like guttural reaction or do you, put it through like an intellectual filter. Um, okay, we'll start with you, Charles. And again, if you feel like you just answered that question, feel free to skip. I'll give you a, a, sh a short-ish answer. I think the first part is just to be real. At the beginning, and this isn't necessarily your question, but like when I'm getting staffed, it's like, who will hire me, right? It's the, I don't have any agency. Um, and of course, there's still maybe some selectivity in that of like, would I be terrible at this? Could I add anything to that room? Um, if, if, and when agency starts to creep in, I guess, you know, I'll be honest at first, both in fiction and in, in like TV film areas, like when I was younger, like a lot younger, it was like, what's going to seem like makes me seem smart. <laughs> you know, like what I, I just wanted to be clever. Um, that was like my twenties, my thirties was like, what would I be proud to show my kids or some, you know, my wife, I guess. Um, and then now I'm in my 40s um and it's like what would i be willing to spend multiple years of my life on you know because i feel the mortality <laughs> and so <laughs> the clock is ticking what is this worth it because it's going to be years of my life in success it'll be years of my life so that's sort of my decision sorry to be such a bummer but no 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 uh, you, you're you're truth telling all full all instinct no intelligence is my is my answer <laughs> <laughs> like great but i think also like i if i don't feel that thing i can't do it like there is no intelligence for me personally that can like there's no amount of screenwriting books or whatever that can teach me how to write a thing that i don't feel inside of think about like how many stories you have to come up with how many versions of things i think it just has to you have to feel it and um, I, I do. I very much agree, though, with Charles, which is like now that I have kids, I'm like, I, it has it has to be great. It has to feel special. It has to feel worth it. I, I, I've always been of the mind, which is if this show already exists, I shouldn't make it because it already exists. So I don't need to add another like lump onto the content pile. But I think even more so now you're like, OK, this is valuable time away from my other job of being a mother and like I better, it better be worth it. It better be worth it. Not financially, nah, financially too, um, but like, you know, worth it. Um, and, but I think for me, it just starts from a feeling or an excitement um, or a chemistry with a person, um, which I think is, is true about everything I've done. I realized I didn't really answer your first question before, but I'm going <laughs> to weave it in here now, but basically. Great, great. Most of my, like, I started in production um, as a PA for a long time, and then I got my break on the newsroom, which is probably not a show that I would have ever gravitated towards. Or And people hate to hear that because the people are obsessed with 
Aaron Sorkin. And I was like, I mean, I've seen a few good men. Um, so I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. But I was really fortunate in that from there, I just kept, I was very conscious of and was constantly told like, this job may be your last, like ever, at every turn. And so I was very practical. It's such a stressful way to <laughs> go about your <laughs> Well, I feel like, especially, I remember being, I got my first staff job at 29 and, and uh, an older writer told me, you have till you're 40. Whatever you are at 40, that is the the peak that you will go in your career. And I was like horrified by that. I'm 40 now. Thank you very much. And I no longer believe in that. But, you know, I think it was really motivating. And I was really fortunate in that I just kept working and very consistently one job would man like that job would turn into another job, which would turn into another job. It wasn't like my agents putting me out there. I was just very fortunate to kind of roll off into the next thing. And so for the first like seven years of my career, I wasn't really thinking about what I wanted to write. Like I would approach each job and try to find my own connection to it. Usually from a place of, I really gravitate towards thinking about story in terms of why do people what do people believe and how does that affect how they move through the world, whether it's like faith mm-hmm. or, you know, politics or just like what they believe about themselves. And so I try to find that piece of every puzzle that I can work with. I think in every show, I mean, and I've worked on some shows, <laughs> it's a struggle, but um, I won't name them, but it's only been in the last couple of years that I feel like I've been able to have more agency in those choices and but I still gravitate towards those same things like I want to tell stories about Pacifica people because I want to create more opportunities for other storytellers to get to join in and 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 have opportunities make the road a little bit easier but within that I'm like well how how can I talk about mental health and how that affects the world or how can I how can I challenge somebody's belief in something no matter what it is? And so hopefully I'll get those opportunities. But I think you can find a point of empathy in every story you're telling. For me, that's really what's important. How can I empathize with even the worst person in this? Um, And that makes it possible to tell even some of the dumbest things that I've had to write in my career. (laughs) You know, as I was saying before, like to me, it's I've always really gravitated towards stories about history and politics, mostly because I feel like there's so many things happening out there or that have happened out there that we don't know about. And I would like to very naively believe that if more people knew these things wouldn't happen again or that they would be different or at least that there would be a little bit more empathy in the world for other experiences. Um and so when I'm looking for a story to me, it's it's really about what does this story have to say? And am I the person to say it? And does it move me? And, you know, like John and Charles were saying, it's going to be years of my life. It's going to be so much sacrifice. My kids are not going to see me. Um, what is this worth it? Is this a story that I want to see on my tombstone? Um, and <laughs> sets the bar pretty high. Uh, But there are a lot of really great stories out there, Um, you know, whether it's 
that I heard it on This American Life or that I read a book about it in college and it really stuck with me. Or sometimes I have producers um, that have approached me um, with a story that is so moving that I can't get out of my head. And I'm like, you know, weeks later, I'm like, okay, that one, I, I can't, you know, I can't see the world existing without this story out there. And um, and so those those are the stories that I'm gravitating towards and that I'm trying to bring to the world. Can, um, I, can I add something real quick? Of Sorry. course, of course, no. I think it's really striking that, and I feel the same way I didn't say it, but all of us have said some version of, we don't wanna tell a story that's not worth sacrificing our families and our lives for. And I think that's part of the issue that is at stake right now that some people don't understand with the strike, which is that there is no boundary to this business. And we're we're asked to do things that are untenable for a single human being to do without giving up every aspect of our life. How is that okay? How is that fair? Like, how do you get the best creativity out of somebody when you're asking them to give up everything else? I have two little kids and that's all I think about. Do I want to go to set for five months because I don't have any other writers on my staff that can go? I don't want to do that. I want to see them grow up. I want them to know who I am. And it's like, this is one of the other things that doesn't get talked about enough in what we're fighting for with this strike. I'm glad we're having this conversation today. And I think it sheds so much light on what's going on in our industry. So yeah, thank you all for speaking so candidly. Most of our audience today is comprised of emerging filmmakers, emerging storytellers, people who are either you know early in their careers or still finding paths to make this their livelihood. So just based on your own experience, and this will be the last group question, and we'll jump to some specific uh, ones geared for each of you. Uh, is there any advice that you would have for someone who has you know, meaningful stories to tell, but has just not found the right platform to tell those stories and i know charles and you i mean you have all mentioned that there's a great deal of luck involved in i think all of our journeys and you do have to be in the right place at the right time um but for the the part of the equation that we do have some control over and the part of the equation that we can work towards are there any any things that come to mind in terms of like like joanna you mentioned you were an assistant for 10 years and, you know, it was probably rough, but you learned so much. Uh, and any other tidbits of like, maybe consider spending your time like this and it'll further your path a little bit. Well, I think we're really lucky that we're writers and that technically we don't need anyone else. I think if, if you know, and I'm sure that there's a lot of emerging directors out there and actors out there. Um, and it's, I think, a little bit trickier to get your own project started. But as a writer, you have the tools at your disposal. Um there's this parable that I heard once and I am going to fuck it up because I'm sure that it was different when it was told to me, but this is what it's become in my head, which is that there was this king who wanted a, a drawing of a swan and he commissioned this like artist and uh, the artist was like, I need this amount of money and I need six months. And so the king pays him and off he goes for six months. And then he comes six months later and is like, where's my swan? And the guy you know, takes out a notepad and draws a little swan and gives it to him. And he's like, what? I mean, I waited six months. I gave you all this money and it took you a second. Then he opens all the drawers and there are all the drafts of hundreds and hundreds of swans that he had drawn. And it was like, to me, that is, it speaks to our craft. Our craft is about how much time we put in, how much effort. And, um, 
even if you don't have an outlet, you can still be writing and none of it will be in vain. Um, Because not only are you becoming a better writer, you don't know if that is going to be the future success story, you know, that script that is currently in your drawer. Um, I just read that Bottoms, uh, the new comedy that's coming out, you know, was written right after NYU and was rejected so many times before, you know, it finally made it. And so I think it's for for a writer, I would say, write, no matter what else you're doing, write. This is why being a writer is so nice. You get to like talk to smart people. Like uh, writers are so nice. They have like stories. They know parables. Um, <laughs> I, I I would say, I mean, I was going to say a similar thing, but this, the less nice version, which is like to some extent, yes, in the, in the globe, in like the sense of like what's important in this life, having an important story to tell is so important. Your stories all matter so much. When it comes to the actual business of being a writer, that's not the only thing that matters. And you have to work on your craft and you have to work hard. If you, even if you have your story is more important than someone else's, if they write it better, yours won't potentially make it to the top. So I think, you know, draw all your swans and, and get tough and watch a lot of movies and read a lot of, a lot of books because we need your story, but you got to get good so that you can make it past all the nonsense that's out there. Also, I would say I wish somebody had told me that 90% of being in this business is about selling yourself, which is something that doesn't come naturally to me at all. And a lot of getting your script in front of someone is being able to articulate who you are and why your story is valuable. And like that takes practice, that takes reps, that takes figuring out how to navigate rooms like first dates with like the worst first dates possible when you go on these generals and people are like in five minutes tell me exactly who you are why you should be in business with you and why you should be the one telling the story which has nothing to do with your writing at all and it's taken me years to figure that out i still have to work on it and nobody told me i thought i was gonna come here and do some writing like it takes forever to get to that part if you can't sell who you are are it's a lot harder to get somebody to believe in you it's it's part of your writing like think of it as creating a role for yourself and presenting the piece of yourself that you want to the world and but there's a craft to that too that is an unfortunate for me at least part of this business a very big part of it okay well the first the first question i have uh writer specific questions for you charles and it's about your book interior chinatown which was published in 2020 it's a moving, darkly funny exploration on identity, assimilation, Asian American representation in popular culture. And the response that your book received was incredible. I remember when it came out, every one of my friends was bringing it up for one or another reason. And it also came at, uh, I think, a, a very specific time for this country and for our industry. We're, we're going through this like important social reckoning. How do you think that the times, the the timing and and this like shifting cultural narrative allowed your book to find such a large audience, such a diverse audience, um, and how did this impact your process of adapting it into the show that we will soon see? Yes, <laughs> yes, to all of that. I, yeah. <laughs> Is that an okay answer? I I think. Um, yeah, well, thank you for saying that about the book and um, to 
uh, one of the attendees who also said it was a beautiful book. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. It took many, many years to write. Um, there are many dark times in that that my wife got me through. Um, and uh, when it came out, uh, like, you know, it came out in a few weeks later, the world shut down uh, because of COVID. And then later that summer, George Floyd was murdered. And so it was it, the year of 2020. I don't have to recount for everyone was a weird time to have a book out because it felt like that's the last thing I wanted to think about. Um, and then somehow it became part of a conversation or a very, very small part of a conversation, unfortunately, because of anti-Asian sentiment and violence. Um, and, and I guess, you know, that's a that's both the worst and the best possible reason to be talking about a book is that it matters to people's lives and it, it's touching on something that's actually relevant in the world. Um, and at the same time, it matters to people's lives and the stakes are literally, you know, people's health and safety. Um, and so um, I don't think I've, I think I'm sort of talking around the question. I'm not sure it's uh no, 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 no. I think, I think in one way, it also just made me realize it kind of connects to the last question, which is, it's, it's really interesting to hear everyone, all the other panelists talk about, um, you know, how they select what they write on what what matters to them. You know, they've all if you look at their bios, they've all, you know, created and or worked on shows that are huge hits, you know, but um, to my mind, if you looked on paper, wouldn't be immediately obvious. In other words, like they don't, they're not necessarily like, like, like uh, dummy proof commercial projects. They're, they, it's not the what, it's the how. It's the how well it was written. You know, it's how well it was told. It's that I think any story can be told that way. And so I, I guess connecting it to my book is there are many points at which I thought this book is for no one. It's too weird. It's very meta, you know, it's like written as a screenplay, you know, it's, it's very weird and it's in second person. And, um, and the only thing that could kind of keep me going throughout that was uh, that I had to tell the story for, you know, for the characters that it was like, the story has to tell itself. And I also think it in, in a weird way connects to the, your other question, Carlos, which is, I, I also feel like I didn't have a platform for that. I mean, I had a publisher, so I guess that's a platform, but I'm glad that book didn't come out any earlier than it. Like, I'm glad it took me that long to write because if it had been second draft goose, it would have been a disaster. If somehow I had convinced someone to publish my, any of the first 500 drafts of that thing, it would have been a disaster. Um, I, I do think for an emerging filmmaker or artist, it sometimes is important to keep your, and I think I'm just repeating what Joanna and others said, but like your platform and your voice at about the same level. Like you don't, <laughs> if you're open mic night ready, then you don't want to play the arena, even if someone gives you the arena. You you will get there if you keep working hard, you know. And but um, you know, it's it's sometimes for your own good that like you develop and you, for me anyway, like define what a win is appropriately. Like take a small win, make it about your work, not about like you know, because hearing you all talk is inspiring, and you remember, oh yeah, writers are artists and they're sincere and dedicated it's not like this kind of stereotype from the movies of like you know pitching something that you wrote on a napkin on the way back from your lunch you know what i mean like that's not what any of these people are talking about so i can't wait to uh 
see what you've done with the show and I think it's going to come at a time where we really need to hear uh, these types of stories. So I'm glad that you're, I'm glad that you've continued to bring your, your stories into multiple mediums. Uh, when does it come up, by the way? Do you know? I do not know. Oh, yeah. That is a okay. big black box of mystery for me. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, let's hope soon. Uh, Dana, you spoke a little about this a little bit ago. Um, but in addition to your writing and your producing work, you help uh, found Peak to support Pacifica creatives in Hollywood and to create more accurate representation for Pacific Islander re uh, representation. So can you just share a little bit about your experience cultivating this organization and how you see these efforts continue, continuing to be pushed further in the next couple of years? For years, I was the only um, only Samoan person, only person from the Pacific in any of the rooms that I ever walked into. And my agents didn't even understand what that meant to be Samoan. They were like vaguely aware of Dwayne Johnson, but that was like all they knew. And that couldn't be less of my experience in the world. Um, but I, I really wanted community and I really wanted to meet other people. I, I went to film school in Hawaii where you know, everyone goes to film school. It's really well known for that. Um, and I knew people who were making amazing work out there, but I didn't know anyone out here. And I wanted, I really wanted to try to bridge that gap, but I didn't know how. And I kept waiting for somebody to um, do it for me. Um, but then in, it was actually through Sundance and I was in a panel and I, I met some people who were feeling similarly. And it's like, there are some amazing AAPI groups, but the PI often sometimes gets lost in the mix. And so we really wanted to create a space for ourselves. Um, and so Peak was born and I was like, oh, I just want to help some writers with the help of Cape, by the way, they've been very, um, inspirational and they've helped us a lot figure out how to navigate the politics that I had no idea existed in the nonprofit world. But really, we want to create opportunities for other people, emerging filmmakers from the Pacific. There are so many talented people. And like me, they don't always have the tools. We don't come from traditionally like film and television backgrounds and families. So we, there's no pipeline. There's not a lot of information. So we're like trying to really set the groundwork for the future and then also hold studios accountable for how they represent us um, because it hasn't been great so far. And, and it's really amazing to have started to have a, a place at the table to have those conversations and to challenge the way that we're represented. Um, and it's way more work than I ever, ever, ever imagined, but it's been really amazing. We had our first like in-person event in May and like 150 Pacific Islanders showed up just to celebrate each other and to, you know, have drinks and talk story. And it wasn't about, you know, the heaviness that is our trauma and our lives. It was just like, oh, we're all here and we see each other and we're in community and now we're going to help each other. And it's been really incredible. And I think hopefully we'll keep moving forward and keep creating opportunities for Pacific Islanders to tell their own stories. Um, but uh, really, I just wanted to help a couple of writers like with some scripts. That was really my goal. And I'm, but I'm thankful that it's become an 
more than that. Sounds incredible. Uh, Carolina, in a very similar vein, you are involved with numerous initiatives such as groups and databases supporting Latinx, Latine writers, uh, particularly female identifying and non-binary writers. Can you also share a little bit about your efforts and the impact that you've seen thus far? Um, yeah, I mean, my efforts were really born out of a similar frustration of like feeling so alone in these writers rooms as the only voice of representation that had been, you know, I, I was so desperate to tell Latine stories, but even when I got to, they were so limited. They were always about immigration or gangs or, you know, drug trafficking. And um, I I felt like I couldn't say anything. Like I just had to be grateful to have the opportunity and I just had to do my job and I had to put my head down. And the few times I tried to speak out, the way that I was smacked down so hard was so impactful that it kind of kept me with my head down until um, Ben Lopez invited me to do a panel for Nalip. And I met a bunch of badass Latina writers, including Tanya Saracho, who not only was so unafraid to say all the things, she just, you know, it, it, she just vibrated with uh, this energy of, of change and of like empowerment. And she put a group of Latina showrunners together and being in community, it was called the Untitled Latinx Project. Um, and what it did is that all of us that had felt so alone realized we weren't alone and that we had a really strong voice and that we had an influence and that we could speak. Um, and even just hearing them say the same things that I'd been feeling made me feel completely different so that I started to speak um to power in a different way. And I started to demand things differently. And to my surprise, people started to listen and it was really gratifying. Um, we wrote a letter to Hollywood, um, you know, with five tenets of what we believed were necessary for adequate Latin A representation. We got a bunch of people to sign it and whether or not the letter made a difference, which I, I hope it did, we sent it to, you know, studios, agencies. Um, to me, what it did was it made me understand what I'm okay with regarding representation and what I demand when I take jobs and when I'm talking to other people about my own work. And so that to me has been sort of paramount. And really quick, the five tenets are no stories about us without us. If you're going to write a story about the Latin A experience, make sure either the writer, the director, the actor, make people involved so that we are not just an afterthought in that story. You know, greenlight our projects uh, and make a plan for a demographic parity. Um, do away with repeating levels. You know, a lot of writers would start at staff writer and get stuck there because, you know, the studios would pay the, the staff writer level because it was a diversity initiative gig. Um, represent all aspects of our culture. You know, we aren't just our trauma. We aren't just specific aspects of our culture. We have so many different stories to tell and hire us for non-Latin projects. You know, we are not just people who can speak to the Latin experience. We're also Americans that can speak to a universal experience. Um, and yeah, I, I, I live by those. My company now strives to live by those as well. And it, it's been very gratifying. 
I remember when that letter came out, it was uh, it was a big day. And it was definitely the type of thing that I just made sure that everyone in my circles had read because I thought you were all so succinct, but also just very reasonable in terms of these requests. And I think it, it just, it, it was huge. So I'm glad, thank you for doing that. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> uh, Joanna, we were speaking recently and I remember you telling me about the character of Sydney and the bear and how she grew and how she evolved significantly from the character that you first met when you were starting to develop the show, to conceive the show. And now, of course, she's become this like iconic character in TV. Could you tell us just a little bit about the evolution of a specific character? Uh, maybe, you know, why she's resonated so much with audiences and if it's left you with any sort of like takeaways in terms of how you now shape and develop characters. You know, what? just to give the background, when I came on to the project, it was a movie that Chris had written a long time ago, and then he had started to turn it into a show. And so there was this, there was two episodes that he had written, and then there were like these sort of these little, you know, um, these little episode ideas. And, and so many of them we used, and or then we used some in two or whatever, you know, like some went away, a lot but he had so much great stuff um but uh the character sydney showed up i think in episode three in his thing and for whatever reason i was like i like her i was like let's just let's just move her up like i just like let's just move her up but it wasn't even it wasn't about like an idea it just felt right to me that i was sort of like this feels like really something um and i just kind of again followed that instinct so i think like you know, I, I think I'm always just trying to get better at listening to the voice in my head that that is telling me things. I think, you know, um, obviously, imposter syndrome, one of the best, hottest syndromes out there. Charles is talking about it. I, I think that's something I really struggle with. But um, to realize that that was just a voice I heard in my head and that it really resonated. You know, other people wanted to see her sooner, too. They just they didn't know. They didn't know. They didn't know that they weren't going to see her for for three episodes. Um, so I'm I'm really glad I listened to that voice. Um, but I think it's probably more about just like what I'm excited about, what I was excited to write about, and also conflict. You know, uh, just getting these two characters that were going to push each other. I mean, that's again, that's kind of a screenwriting thing more than a uh, a feminism thing. Um, so I think both both are live in that moment for me. Um, I think, you know, we got really lucky then with the casting of Io in that it was sort of a different woman than I'd seen. I, I'm always trying to write a different woman than I've seen because I think they're, you know, and obviously Orange is the New Black and and all of Shonda's things, like these are such good good examples of where there are a lot of strong women, but I think we still, there's still kind of these archetypes and and this idea that a character could be type A and also weird and also, you know, um, nerdy and then also funny and then also angry and like just that she could have all of these things um, that felt really exciting. And and a lot of that was alive in the writing. And but it only happened because of Io. like she brought this next, next, next level to how funny she is, 
how smart she is, how angry she is. And so, I mean, I think there, that's an interesting kind of, um, I don't, you know, again, the takeaway is try to, try to get the best gas you can. <laughs> and also sometimes you get lucky, which again is Charles's genius piece of advice. Um, but I think the more we can try to like, just follow the voices in our head that say, I haven't seen this or I want to see this, or, or I'm really excited about this character, I think is, is something we can all um, move forward with. Now that storytelling has become a business for you, are there any things that you do to make sure you maintain a sense of discovery or wonderment? How do you stay inspired? How do you um, try to break from the industry of it all and continue nurturing your storytelling spirit? I still love film and TV. Like I, I despite working in it, I am not, I, I'm, I'm jaded by it in certain ways when I'm at work, but the I still love nothing more than going to an amazing movie and the feeling that it gives me. And I am so transported. And if anything, being in the industry and working in it for so long has given me such appreciation for things that are beautifully crafted. And when when the twists are perfect or the character really just made me feel, I am so transported still. Like I still have that same awe and I, I hope I always do. And I think if I stop having it, I might just stop doing what I do. I try to leave LA as much as possible. <laughs> I I don't find this, I mean, I grew up in Southern California, but I don't find this place particularly inspiring. And I feel like um, Hawaii is a very safe place for me, which I'm very fortunate to be able to go to. But like just being around my husband's not in this business. So being around people that aren't that don't care what I do, which is most people in my family and my life, I think is really helpful because it forces me to talk about other things. And I find that there's less a lot of magic in that. Yes. Don't get out of here. Um, go see movies, watch things with like excitement and not comparison, you know, and just try to be a, try to be a watcher. Um, I really like books. <laughs> I really like reading books. Um, but I, I think like the thing I'll add is just like finding any way you can to be present, like in your actual life, <laughs> whether it's, I think my kids really helped me with that and I'm not advocating having children, but I, that I've found that to be really true, which is that like, I can just be with them and, and not be anywhere else and not be on my phone. And um, I think that makes me feel alive, you know, and that's like the, the juice that you need to then turn it into something. Uh, okay. So we'll move on to our submitted questions and, you know, feel free to keep these short of you on so we can get as many through as many as possible. Um how to demand things differently as Carolina learned to do in a room that doesn't look like what you look like. Strategy for for uh, moving your agenda forward and not being uh, um, called out for being an agenda pusher. Yeah, it's it's hard. I'd say finding your moments is crucial. I'd say it's a complicated dance. I think part of the reason I would get smacked down is because sometimes I was confrontational. Sometimes I would say things that would make the showrunner feel defensive. And I hate that you're put in a position where you have to find 
the way in that is the least conflictive because sometimes you're angry. And I think you have to be able to articulate what you want to say, but I think you also want to be able to succeed in what you want to say. And the best way to do that sometimes is to find the moment and to really pick your battles. Um, and I think nowadays, especially people are, are you know, incredibly touchy and defensive because everybody is scared of being called out. And so I think sometimes you can, you can talk to people privately um, if you feel like something has made you uncomfortable, but I think as long as, I mean, it's going to sound a little naive, but as long as you approach it with compassion and openness in your conversation, hopefully it will be received in the same way. That's so well said. And, and it's so hard and it is, it is unfair to all the people that, that are probably listening that are going to be put in that position. And, and also, yes, I think our jobs are somewhat complicated in that we're working on a big group project and we're all sitting around this table and it seems like we're all, it's all open and then it's kind of can morph. Um, and I do think finding, picking your, your moment is so smart and yeah, trying to look there, there's, there's the part of us that gets to say something um, offensive and we do, we, we are angry and we want to say that out loud that has value and then actually getting what you want also has value. And so I think it's deciding kind of what, what you want to do. do you, can you pitch a story that's different? So you're not just criticizing, but you're saying, what if we did it like this, right? It's like you, you're using your your craft to kind of go around the bend and you have to just sort of go back and forth between which need do I really, which need is stronger right now? Do I have to say say this thing out loud? Is it important for me to say that what you're saying is wrong? Or do I want to really try to make change in this story? And then is there a way to to make that happen? Do any of you have any hot takes on AI? Is it all bad? Have you used it um, productively? I have not used it. I will never touch it. I think it's really bad. <laughs> but I'm also old. So, but I've seen I've seen a lot of Terminator movies. I'm not going in. <laughs> uh, are there any books other than the widely known screenwriting books that you would recommend for a writer who's trying to find their way i think the one book that i sometimes recommend to people is walter murch's book on editing in the blink of an eye which is a little bit of a roundabout way to get to something but for i guess the uh, filmmakers of the audience um probably people know it but for writers i actually think it's sneaky useful as well that is great advice and i, I do think that editing in particular but other areas of filmmaking are probably really, really good for writers to be better rounded and understand. If you're a writer, find a way to get on a set, even if it's like a student film or a short film, and just like really appreciating the work it takes to make something is really important. I've been in a lot of rooms where writers had never been on set and like you're pitching things that are unfeasible for a five day shoot and like can't understand why that's possible. And like, it creates compassion for the people you're asking to do this too, which I think as a leader goes a really long way. Do you have any advice or tips or tricks for pitching? I'm sure this could be a whole hour long conversation, but any that come to mind that's just like. Beta blockers. <laughs> Great. I was very, very bad at pitching for a very, very, very long time. And it was awful. It was 
fucking awful. And I, I also think like, I'm not a performer, I'm a writer and I should be allowed to be a writer. And I think it's very unfair that I'm expected to speak. Like, I just think it's really a trick. Um, all that being said, one, I only pitch things that I like, which is like a new thing that I tried about five years ago. Like I was pitching what I thought I was supposed to pitch and it never came out good because it wasn't real. It was like, it, I couldn't, I couldn't sell it cause I didn't believe it. Um, and then also just practice, just write it down, then say it out loud and it'll sound weird. And then you make it sound better. And then you practice and you practice and you practice. And then last, I love pitching on zoom because I can just fucking read off the screen. It has been like life changing for me. I don't know what I'm going to do when they make me have to go into a room <laughs> because I, it's such a cheat. I just, I can read and I can make it seem like I'm talking to them, but practice, 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 you know, that's great advice. Uh, Charles, believe it or not, we have a 40 year old lawyer trying to bring into the business. Right. Um, Okay. This person feels the crush of time these days. Any advisor recommendation or resources would be invaluable. Wow. That's a lot of pressure. Um, yeah, I, know, I, 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 know. I was 39 when I was in the Westworld room. Uh, and uh, so I feel you. Advice um, or resources. I mean, this is going to sound crazy, but I feel like the maybe the the worst thing to do would be to like try to make up for lost time i think use the you know use your experience as what you have actually and don't try to be the 26 year old staff writer in the room because you're not going to be as cool as that person you are not <laughs> i don't know if you have kids lean into the dad jokes of it all is what i'm saying um i i, I think um you know honestly i i do feel like uh, I got hired for maybe like the one job I was like perfectly slotted for, which is like meta science fiction writer. Somehow there was a job for that. So if you could find something like there might be that one person out in the Hollywood ecosystem who's actually looking for what you've got. I think there are more than one. I, I think there's first of all, there's plenty of people probably looking for some kind of legal background. You don't have to work for a legal show. But you'd be surprised at how many kind of things are transferable or might be useful. If nothing else, I think your like physical stamina <laughs> and your ability to take notes and write memos will probably come in handy if you uh, want to get on someone's desk, because that is probably also a good way to learn a lot. Do you all feel like there's any specific type of story right now that's being overtold in film and TV? Cool. A little uh, controversial of a question, but rich people's stories. I'm just over okay. it. Uh, any thoughts on Zoom rooms? Are they sticking around? Do you see a benefit to decentralizing writing from LA, or is something lost when not collaborating in person? I assume there's probably pros and cons, but what are what are you guys' thoughts? If I opened a room right now, I would ask for like four to six weeks in person, I think. And then I would want the rest of the time anywhere. So that way, I do think there's something to bonding, especially when you're developing that first bit of the show and building characters and stuff. There's things that can't be replaced from sitting at a table and like the things that happen when you're just like complaining about salad, like magic happens then. But 
I want to be able to hire people who don't live in Los Angeles. I want new voices. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how we as, oh wait, got moved. how we as writers can go further than simply representing our own cultures and experiences and how we can, what we can do to bring cultures together in something greater because it feels like there's a hole in the industry. I think just talking about um, multiculturality and storytelling. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a big one to answer shortly, but, but Carolina, it sounds like you have a, yeah, I think yes, Carolina. Right <laughs> I mean, I've been I've been very lucky to work on shows that have done it beautifully, you know. And I think it comes from just choosing stories in which, you know, you really can bring in a whole slew of characters from different backgrounds and different cultures and different races. Um, and what that allows you to do is then also bring in writers and actors of these cultures and really let them weigh in and and you know and part of the magic that does happen in that writer's room is watching all of these cultures and people combine and then also seeing the universality of it all right and um so i i mean it's the way to do it is to just do it to write it and to make space for those stories and really find the places where those things can exist naturally. Like, well, obviously prison was a was a good one and, and a hospital is another, but everywhere in the world, I mean, we're all existing together. Um, and why not put that on our screens? Okay, last question from our audience. What, in your opinion, separates great writers from mediocre ones? I mean, I don't know how to answer that because I think it's just a feeling. It's just a feeling. It's like, do I, do I still want to read? Do I still want to read? Do I still want to watch? I, I think like, I think there's so many different ways to be a great writer. You can, you can be, have like an amazingly like honed craft. You can work, write a thousand drafts and never give up. You can also just have an electric voice and, and, and kind of be someone that's saying things that's never said before can have an amazing imagination like there's no there's no real one real way but I, I do think you know I, I think you know and I think you want to keep reading um would be my answer okay before we let you go if and when there's a television show of each of your lives who would you cast to play you and what genre would it be Charles you're unmuted so I'll oh no um Dwayne the Rock Johnson uh, it'd be a car racing movie, <laughs> uh, but then he quits car racing to be a writer. Perfect. I asked a similar question to our directing group, and they literally just like turned off their computers and left the room. <laughs> I'll take Selena Gomez, and uh, yeah, and uh, it's probably about like dark comedy about a Latina girl's experiences in a Connecticut boarding school. It sounds so good. Yeah. Yeah, for real, please. Let's make it, please Joanna. Do. You and me, we'll talk after. I, I would love to. I'm, I'm, I'm so in on on boarding school. Um, Joanna, I yeah, I don't know. I mean, people always are like, "You look like Michelle Rodriguez," and I think I, I was like, "I'm just a Latina. I, I actually don't look like her at all." <laughs> but I, I guess it would have to be her. I think I, I think I have like if if, if Catherine Hahn. And Michelle Rodriguez had a baby. I think that that would really capture um, 
the nonsense that I have to give. I don't know. I, I, I would love to be in like a witchy genre, like female genre film um, where like my, I have like a beautiful family, but then like uh, some like a neighbor is trying to kill us. And then I like use some like found witch spells to get rid of them and then get to go back to my family. <laughs> I, and I think I that, that it represents Hollywood is, is what I'm realizing. <laughs> uh, Dana, did you? I mean, I write stories because I don't want to deal with the life I actually have. Like that's why we're here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> if I wanted to watch that, um, no, I, I, I think I'd it'd be like a historical drama about my twisted family tree. Um, and you know what? I don't know who I'd cast yet because I, I've yet to see a person who looks like me on TV. So auditions are open. Yeah, they're coming. They're coming. Thanks, people like you. Uh, thank you so much, all four of you. I know that you're all busy and have families and lives and are striking. So thank you so, so much for taking the time. Much, much appreciated. Thank you, Carlos. Great job. Hard job. All right. Well, thank you all for tuning in and goodbye. Many thanks once again to Carlos for organizing and moderating that incredible conversation and to Carolina, Dana, Joanna, and Charles for participating. If you enjoyed this program, please stay tuned. We will be bringing you more of the Anti-Gravity Academy satellite sessions in the coming weeks. But if you'd like to tune in live and contribute some questions of your own, be sure to follow Anti-Gravity Academy online. You can find that link in our show notes. And if you'd like even more conversations with artists and filmmakers about how they use technology to tell their stories, please be sure you are subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube in our show notes. Or you can simply search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you will find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, thank you again for joining us. This is the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon. Thanks for joining us.